I started weightlifting more seriously a couple of years ago now, and I think it, it's been really helpful for me in many ways, you know, physically, but also mentally. And I think that one of the things that's been the most rewarding has been focusing on being stronger and not being smaller. Yes. And I'm not trying to look toned. Right. Or long and lean. There's all these like catchphrase words. You know? Yes. Yes. From Shape Magazine or various other toxic pieces of crap. Welcome to Female of the Species, a podcast for the Sisterhood of Science. This episode, I'm really excited to welcome Anne-Marie Wisman. Did I say your name right? You did. Oh, thank God. You're awesome. <laughs> I was like, oh no, I forgot to ask her. <laughs> <laughs> Anne-Marie works at UT Southwestern Medical Center. She's a neuroscientist and really excited to have her here. Anne-Marie also has the uh, special honor of being the first podcast guest who I didn't know before starting the podcast. So Anne-Marie and I were put in touch by a mutual friend over um, social media. And so I'm especially excited to have her here on the show with us today. So welcome, Anne-Marie. Thank you so much. This is my first time doing something like this, so I am super excited as well. Uh, well, we'll try to we'll try to make it easy for you. <laughs> uh, so, if you could just tell uh, listeners out there a little bit about your research. Okay, so I work in a psychiatry department, and but but not doing clinical research, doing basic research. So we our lab studies drug addiction using a rat model where the rats actually self-administer the drugs. Uh, so we put rats in a chamber which has levers and lights and so forth, and we train them to press a lever to take cocaine. And wow, I've like read about those experiments. That's so cool that you actually do them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is very cool. Uh, it, so we use this um, self-administration model because it allows us to ask some interesting questions about the rats' motivation and their behavior more so than just, say, injecting them with cocaine and watching them run around in a box, mm -hmm. which plenty of people do uh, and do other uh, experiments related to addiction where they look at place preference, um, uh, locomotor sensitization, and other uh, behavioral tests. But this one allows us to uh, give the animals the ability to tell us how badly they want the drug and how hard they're willing to work for it, and we can offer them choices, et cetera. And it makes the um, experiments a little bit more relevant to the big question, which is really how do we help addicts get off of drugs? Right, so you're using rodent models to try to understand addiction eventually in humans. Yes, yes, yeah. and particularly looking at the neural basis, so looking at the parts of the brain that control reward and addiction mm -hmm and trying to figure out how those change under different circumstances. So how do you actually figure out what's going on in their brains when they're pressing the lever or eating the cocaine? So uh, they don't eat it, actually. We uh, implant jugular catheters, so they get it oh, right wow. into their veins. Oh, my God. Uh, it actually <laughs> makes it easier for us to train them because they get immediate feedback when they press the lever. Right. Um, and we, in our lab, we don't do um, online in vivo recording in the brain or imaging mm -hmm. while while they're actually in the box uh, pressing the lever. 
Um, but we do look at the brains afterwards, both in terms of biochemically and anatomically, uh, which involves sacrificing the animal right. at the end of the study. Right. Um, another thing that we use is a relatively new technique in neuroscience called optogenetics, where we insert a light-sensitive ion channel into different parts of the brain, and then we can use a fiber optic attached to a laser to stimulate certain pathways in the brain. And I have a colleague here who does something similar. I've seen some photos of that. That's really crazy. Yeah, it is a really impressive technique. It allows us to really dig deep into circuits and tease apart some of the um, contributions of different areas of the brain to any given behavior or um, fundamental Mm -hmm. effects on the brain. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what some of your favorite ways are to take care of yourself after you get uh, bad professional news? Well, in graduate school, uh, I had an experiment go horribly wrong. Uh, I was actually working in somebody else's lab trying to do a technique that we didn't do in my lab. And they were in the process of moving to another university in another state. So the lab was kind of disintegrating around me, and I was desperately trying to get this experiment in before they completely disappeared. Um, And I screwed it up badly. Um, It had to do with the expiration of a chemical that I was using that I didn't really realize was going to be a problem. So I came in on a Saturday morning to just um, uh, see the progress of the experiment as it was going. And I developed some test slides and realized that the entire experiment had failed. Oh, and man. I was scheduled to go hiking. I, this was in Seattle, uh, University of Washington. I was scheduled to go hiking with another graduate student friend that day. And he came into the lab to meet me and found me sobbing at my desk. Oh, no. <laughs> and, you know, it was sort of this awkward, like, well, you still want to go? And I was like, yes, I still want to go. <laughs> so we went on this beautiful hike an old growth forest up to a lake in the snow by the time we got up to into the mountains and it really uh gave me the perspective that like this was just one thing it didn't, totally um make yeah. me a terrible person or a bad <laughs> scientist i just made a mistake and you know i could still move forward with my life and my career <laughs> um yeah i think that's one of the hardest things about being a scientist is that our work is personal to us yes and so when things like that happen, it's really hard to separate your professional failure from a feeling of personal failure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I think it's, it's things like that, just getting out of the lab, doing something active for me is really important. Um, I uh, train with a triathlon team and I go to a CrossFit gym and both of those things kind of get me in a, into social circumstances where I'm with other people who really... Yeah don't care yeah, totally. <laughs> of anything about my work. <laughs> yeah, that's so important. You're like, oh, like you don't give two craps about what I do all day, but you still want to hang out with me. <laughs> exactly. And, and look, I can do a handstand that I've never yeah. been able to do before, you know. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah so that, I think that's really important. I also sing with a women's choir, and the, um, that is also both kind of a social and a sort of uh, – just the community synergy of singing with a group of people mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. 
kind of meditative and really takes me out of that that state of mind where I'm just ruminating over the details of my own failures. Yeah, totally. I've singing is always one of those things that I wish that I had done growing up more. Mm -hmm. Because I just the feeling of singing with other people is so powerful. It really is. And uh, I really love this group of women. It's the Women's Chorus of Dallas. And we it's other than gender, it is by far the most diverse group of people I have ever spent time with. We have all ages, all professions, uh, different racial groups represented. Um, we have people with disabilities in the chorus. Um, and we really have different political leanings. Mm -hmm. And we all just come together to make beautiful music. And it feels like, you know, all is right with the world. <laughs> yeah, for a little while yeah. at least. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Are you a coffee drinker or a tea drinker or, or something else drinker? Uh, mostly coffee. I do enjoy tea. Um, coffee is what kind of gets me going in the morning. And tea is a little bit more of a midday pick-me-up when I don't want to hit myself over the head. Yeah, for sure. It's a little, a, just a, a baby pick-me-up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. My lab mate actually gave me a pack of caffeinated gum. Uh, oh, wow. I, I haven't tried it yet. I'm a little <laughs> bit nervous. I'm not really sure if it's going to be one of those things, like a fruity drink where you don't realize that it yeah. is even until later. <laughs> that also seems like a sort of like an act of desperation. <laughs> yes. You know, it's like if you have, if you don't have enough time to go get a cup of coffee right. and you're chewing caffeinated gum, then something's probably wrong. I like, we had a, a meeting at work yesterday and I, it was at lunchtime and I showed up with a cup of coffee and a colleague of mine sort of made a comment about it. And I was like, look, if I'm going to be addicted to something, this is my choice. Absolutely. <laughs> it's probably the, the most harmless. Exactly. Right. And, and you're a professional addiction researcher. So I feel vindicated by you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, actually, my the colleague that uh, drank seven cups a day was also a smoker. And oh, he was wow. an addiction researcher. And <laughs> His perspective was, if you're not addicted to something, how do you really know what you're studying? So he was just immersed in his research. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like at an anthropological level. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like method acting. So what are you reading right now? Uh, well, I just started uh, Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, oh. part of a book club that we're starting um, with some friends that is basically trying to educate ourselves as white people about mm -hmm. issues that we don't have to deal with on a regular basis. So this was um, a choice for the first book to kick things off. I got his book as an audiobook, which he narrates, which is wonderful. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, in the fall, and it's, you know, it's pretty short, and I was traveling to Connecticut to give a talk and I listened to the whole thing, like from the drive there and the drive back. And it was one of those books where I was sitting in the parking lot of like a Dunkin' Donuts, you know, cause I couldn't, I couldn't right. turn it off. <laughs> yeah. Having an NPR driveway moment, except. Yes, exactly. I was having an NPR driveway moment at a Dunkin' Donuts. Yes. Um, but I found it really powerful. And I think it, you know, I, as a white person who hasn't had to deal with these issues, um, you know, who didn't grow up in a urban environment. I think it um, really fundamentally changed the way I thought about race and also how I thought about whiteness. 
because um, he talks a lot about how whiteness is a construct. Um, yes. And that was that was really powerful and really eye opening for me. Yeah, I mean, it's and it, I really feel like it's work that that we have to do. We can't just rely on totally. people of color to do that work for us. I recently joined a group uh, called Showing Up for Racial Justice. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, it's like so a national national organization. It is, and the DFW chapter just kind of experienced a resurgence after the police shootings at, at, during the protest in Dallas. That's when I uh, started going to meetings and. Uh, one of the, you know, working groups for that is an education group that is working on collecting um, resources, basically, uh, that are vetted and uh, useful for this kind of self-education. So we do a segment on each episode on Shine Theory. And if you're not familiar with the Shine Theory, you can uh, listen to our first episode or check out um, the link on the show notes. But basically, the idea behind Shine Theory is to highlight uh, women in our lives um, who are really psyched about, and maybe women that society or others think that we should be competitive with, but that we actually want to embrace as sort of allies and partners in our life and in our successes. And so um, let us know uh, who your Shine Theory picks are this week. I think you have two. Yeah. So I have one that's professional. And uh, she comes up this week because uh, I recently found out that she's coming to give a talk here at UT Southwestern, and I'm really excited about it. And uh, she's actually my former mentor, Catherine Woolley, Dr. Catherine Woolley, who's at Northwestern University. And she is such a powerhouse scientist Um, But she also really cares about teaching and communication. Um, She's won teaching awards. And uh, the thing that impressed, one of the things that impressed me the most when I was working with her is when she had a keynote uh, presidential special lecture at the big Society for Neuroscience Conference, which happens every year and involves about 30,000 people from around the world. She practiced that talk. I don't even know how many times on her own <laughs> because she actually workshopped it with us a couple of times uh-huh. and took suggestions. And, you know, one of the issues is that it's being projected on several screens, so she can't really use the laser pointer. Right, um, right. So trying to, you know, create graphics that and, and animate them in ways that isn't annoying but actually highlights the things that need to be highlighted on each slide, et cetera. And the amount of time and attention that she put into that just to make it as informative as possible to as many people as possible was just super impressive. So I love that. I think she's one of the best speakers I've ever heard. And that's also a meeting. And her research is really interesting, too. So she's looking at different mechanisms of essentially uh, a substrate of learning in the brain that works differently in males and females and respond differently to hormones in males versus females. Wow. And it's so interesting. I mean, it's, it's mechanistic details that I don't want to go into, but um, really, really cool stuff. And that's a, uh, I mean, neuroscience, I think I was just reading uh, a blog post a couple of days ago about how neuroscience meetings tend to be uh, more gender skewed than the neuroscience community in terms of speakers. I think that's true. The year that uh, Catherine was invited to give this presidential special lecture, the president was Eve Martyr, who is another total uh, 
idol of mine. Uh, she's a professor at Brandeis, and she was very early on a pioneer in terms of women in science and women in neuroscience, particularly because the work that she does is computational, and you don't get as many women in the computational modeling side of the mm -hmm. field. Uh, so she was the president, and so um, her picks for the big lectures were a lot more balanced. Um, she was really trying to uh, pull in some uh, people whose voices might not otherwise be heard. Although, of course, I believe Catherine, you know, merited a, a lecture right, anyway. Of course. But. Yeah. Yeah. But that really emphasizes the fact that when there are not women in leadership roles, that has a trickle down effect. Absolutely. Um, and when you get more women in leadership roles, I think that ends up improving um, gender ratios across the board at things like conferences or, you know, leadership roles in societies and things like that. Definitely. So who is your other uh, shine theory choice? So uh, my non-scientist uh, shine theory person of the week is named Becca Day. She is uh, a part-time coach at our gym. She also coaches at other gyms. Um, These are she, CrossFit gyms? Yes, the other CrossFit okay. gyms. She um, competed in the team competition in the CrossFit Games, the uh, worldwide uh, finals this summer. Her team came in fourth, and she did spectacularly. That's also, amazing. Anyway, Becca is an uh, incredibly sweet and wonderful person. She's also about the strongest woman I've ever seen in my life. She's and her muscles are incredible. Um, and she is the epitome of that idea that, you know, women shouldn't be bulky and women can be beautiful mm -hmm. and strong at the same time. And she just she just knocks that out of the park because she is gorgeous and incredibly strong. And she's also a great coach. She's a really good teacher. And I think she's really making other women feel like it is okay to be strong. One of the interesting things that's going on in biomedical sciences these days is that there is a new rule in effect this year uh, from the National Institutes of Health, which funds the vast majority of biomedical research in the U.S. And the new rule says that uh, preclinical researchers, which is people like me who are doing studies on model organisms like rats or mice or monkeys or any other um, model animal need to incorporate both male and female subjects into their work. And this came about uh, because there has long been a disparity both in preclinical and in clinical studies. There's been a big disparity in the uh, male and female uh, involvement in these studies. And so you get a lot of situations where um, something, a drug or a procedure is uh, extensively studied in men, and then you go to expand it to women, and different things come up. Different dosages have to be taken into account, etc. Um, this is also true for other underrepresented minorities. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, we're not dealing with that in our animal model systems. So the male-female thing, um, people have been talking about clinically for a while now, and there are rules in place now. Um, as far as clinical trials and things like that go, um, both in terms of inclusivity for performing the trial and also then for reporting the results. 
And that hasn't been the case in preclinical work and model systems. And so the NIH has, has asked all of its investigators to start incorporating females uh, because unless you're studying something that's very female specific like breast cancer, most studies won't actually look at females at all. Uh, hmm. And one of the reasons for that, of course, is that females have a hormone cycle, uh, right. an estrous cycle right. in the case of the rats, menstrual cycle in humans. Um, and What about f- do flies have hormonal cycles? That's a great question. I think it's a little different in flies, but I don't know enough to say for sure that they don't have anything yeah. like that. I'm I mean, wondering if there's like 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 fly PMS. You right. Know, I'm just imagining what that would look like. Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> I should ask my friends who study flies. But in, in mammals anyway. Um, yeah. There, there is an estrous cycle. And we know that it affects some things. For example, in drug addiction, uh, females are actually more susceptible to the effects of drugs of abuse than males. Hmm. Um, and the reasons for the disparity, the, the male dominant uh, aspect of, of drug abuse in society has other reasons like risk taking and societal norms, et cetera. Um, but the actual physiological response is stronger in females. Uh, there's studies in humans and animals that suggest that this is hormone related. But most, and there are a certain number of investigators who have been looking at those sex differences and trying to understand why they occur and how they affect the behavior. Um, but most addiction researchers just study males. And right. you can imagine that somebody like um, my current uh, professor that I work for uh, to say, well, we're going to study females now. It's not quite as simple as, well, we'll just throw the females in. We need to monitor the cycle. The issue that a lot of scientists have with this is that you're basically doubling your sample size, but the NIH isn't giving us any money. Right. <laughs> right. There's no change in the funding structure for that. Yeah, right, yeah. right. 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 The point is that, uh, especially when we're doing the kind of investigative studies where we're trying to figure out what's going on and we don't actually know already what the mechanism is, it's going to be important to include females so that we can see if there's a difference at all and then report those data whether there is or, or isn't. So this way that data will be accessible to everybody That's because if it's, if it's NIH funded, then it has to go into some sort of accessible database, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, I, I you know, I've often thought about and read about many drugs were developed and tested basically only in males, right? Yeah. Like in humans. I mean, that rule, when did that change? Do you know? Um, I don't know... I don't, it was like, I don't know exactly. It wasn't like that long ago. Yeah, it was though, not that I think. long ago. Yeah. We've been talking about it maybe yeah. for the past 15, 20 years. Yeah, the whole lack of research into you know health as correlated with gender, I find really, really frustrating. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've definitely had personal experiences of going to the doctor, you know, with a, you know, an, an issue related to my menstrual cycle and basically being told, oh, that's normal. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Yeah. And I'm like, well, but uh, can you tell me more? <laughs> like, right. <laughs> Why is this? <laughs> yeah. I like had this experience as a in the, my 20s where I would get like extremely lightheaded. I thought I had some sort of, you know, maybe thyroid imbalance or something. And I went and got all these tests and they were like, well, there's nothing wrong with you. 
Um, and then like 10 years later, I came across some study that was basically talking about how it's correlated with menstrual cycles. It can be. Uh, and I was like, if the doctor had just told me to like pay attention to when this happened, exactly. you know, yeah. like it would have made so much more sense to me. And I would have saved me all these doctor's visits and all these blood tests. And mm-hmm. I mean, it wouldn't necessarily have fixed the problem, but at least I would have had a better, a better understanding of what was happening in my own body. Yeah. And if that were more common, then doctors themselves would have a better sense of the range of issues that patients are having and what that's right might correlate yeah. with yeah for sure and we wouldn't have to go to as my OBGYN says Dr. Google all the time <laughs> exactly <laughs> I was in there a couple months ago and she was like you went to Dr. Google didn't you <laughs> yeah I totally did that I went to a doctor for some knee pain and I said well I'm pretty sure I have patellar tendonitis but I, I think maybe I should ask you first before I make a decision <laughs> I was like thank you and it must be like worse when pe- with people like us who are like, oh, well, I went into Google Scholar right. and I downloaded some articles and the doctor's like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you study rocks. <laughs> I was listening to uh, a podcast, another podcast, Warm Regards, which is a wonderful podcast about climate change. And they were talking about climate change deniers and the issues um, that people have evaluating data. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a professor at a, at a college teaching undergraduates, I've thought a lot about what the point of my job really is, you know? Like, mm-hmm. sure, I teach students about rocks and fossils and the history of Earth, and that's wonderful. But I think the more important part of my job is helping students learn how to think and learn how to evaluate data and uh, and understand the peer review process. So, you know, one of the big things in climate science is this sense that like, oh, if there's if there's any sort of quote unquote disagreement in the scientific community, then that means it's all a sham. Right. Right. Uh, Whereas, in fact, disagreement is how science moves forward. And, and that a lot of people don't really understand what peer review means or how, you know, research articles get published. And for those of you listening who don't know, basically, you know, I write a paper and I submit it to a journal. Um, and then if the journal thinks it's appropriate for that journal, then they send it out to, you know, two to four other scientists in my field who read the paper and decide whether or not it's of high quality and provide, you know, hopefully constructive feedback, although... Sometimes it's destructive <laughs> feedback. Um, and then, you know, the journal can either tell me, uh, you know, make, make some changes and we'll publish it, or there are fundamental problems with your paper and we're not going to publish it. So it's not like we just get to write whatever we want and, and put it out there. Um, there's, a, there's a process um, that occurs, and, and I think that that's a process that's poorly understood by people outside of academia. I mean, for good reason. No, it's not like... People talk about it. It's not very exciting. The same kind of thing (laughs) happens. And so when you get somebody like a congressman, um, I can't remember the guy's name who started the Golden Fleece Awards where they're trying to highlight uh, data or uh, projects that were being federally funded that they thought were ridiculous. um, Based on, of course, just on the summary, the one paragraph summary of what the study is about. Um, And, you know, obviously looking at that from a 500,000 foot perspective doesn't always give you the kind of the backstory behind where 
where did this come from and where is this going? And it's not like the government's just willy-nilly giving out funds to anybody who asks for it. Right. I mean, honestly, right now, the um, National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is the institute within the NIH mm-hmm, that we mm-hmm. get our funding from, is funding grants at like 8%, like the top 8% of applications are getting funded. So very competitive. It's very hard to get that funding. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the funding rates in my field are very similar, um, which is really you know disheartening for young scientists. <laughs> but it also means that it's really tough for quote unquote bad science mm-hmm. to make it through. Um, I mean, I've had friends who have been told to rewrite the titles of their grants and the grant summary statements. Um, and because those are the things that the con- congressional staffers look at, they don't read the whole grant usually. So making sure that the titles and that first page summary statement that you write that is basically like an abstract of the whole grant um, doesn't have any red flags in it. So it doesn't get called out by some, you know, 22-year-old Republican right. staffer. <laughs> exactly. Although sometimes it's really um, amazing what they pull out. The, the quintessential example is Sarah Palin saying that fruit fly research was pointless. That's right. In fact, that's given us pretty much all of the information we understand about genetics. Yeah. No. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. It's like we're not trying to figure out how to get them to stop flying around your bananas, right. Sarah. It's not what's going on here. Well, Anne-Marie, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. It was really fun talking to you. Absolutely. I really enjoyed it. And um, we're hoping that you'll be able to come back and talk to us um, again in the future, because I think you have a few other really interesting issues involving the NIH and women in science and uh, translational research that would be really fun to talk about. I would love to come back. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Cool. You can find us all over the internet. Head to femaleofthespecies.org to find out everything about the show. We're on Twitter at femaleofthesb. You can email us at femaleofthesb at gmail.com, and you can find us on Facebook. Just search for Female of the Species. You can subscribe to Female of the Species on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, and we'd love it if you'd leave us a review and let us know what you think of the podcast. Female of the Species is produced by Tamar Avishai. Check out her amazing art history podcast, The Lonely Palette, which you can find at thelonelypalette.com. Mm-hmm.